I didn't come here to necessarily be the best preacher you've ever heard, but I do believe that the Lord has a message that you need to hear and that I need to hear and that we as a people need to reflect on and contemplate because I believe the Lord is looking to prepare a people to inhabit heaven and soon we're going to see Jesus come. So what we want to do is understand God's word and go beyond a mere understanding but an application of God's word so that we can have a genuine restoration into the very image of God and we can prepare to be citizens of his kingdom. So our first message is entitled The Unnecessary Parable. The Unnecessary Parable. But before we dive into this study or any other study from God's Word, of course, the very first thing we need to do is start with a word of prayer. So if you'd be so kind as to bow your heads with me, and then we'll be off to the races. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to be in Loma Linda, California tonight. I want to thank you for these set of meetings, for this particular venue, and for the time that we've been able to carve out of our busy schedules just for a few moments to step away from the rest of the world and the, the pace of modern life. Come together in fellowship and in study of your word. And Lord, tonight we would ask that the same Holy Spirit who inspired those authors to put those thoughts down on paper would use that power to write it on our hearts. For Lord, we don't want just an interesting study. Lord, we want to learn, we want to grow, we want to become like Jesus. So to that end, Lord, bless our time together tonight. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The unnecessary parable. I'm going to assume that most of you have Bibles with you, and if you'd like to, I would encourage you to follow along in the Scriptures. But if you happen not to bring a Bible, I know that we're not in a church per se, and I don't believe we have pew Bibles, but I want to make sure that everyone can see the Word of God for themselves. And so if we have these slides and screens, we're going to show you um, slides on the screen for this evening. And we're going to begin in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke The story, the title from our message comes from this encounter that Jesus had as recorded in Luke chapter 10. It says here, and behold, a certain, and what's this word? Lawyer, two people said. Now, I'm going to pause right here. The handy thing about this structure that I've noticed is we've got two different crowds. There's the noonday crowd and the evening crowd. Now, I'm not trying to pit you against each other, but it is a competition. No. (laughs) I'm looking for the ameningest crowd that there is in California tonight, okay? And what we're looking for is participation, and sometimes I'll ask you to read a word, and it's to make sure that you're still, you know, awake. Amen. There you go. <laughs> Said the other guy from Michigan. <laughs> and behold, a certain, what's that word? Lawyer. lawyer stood up. Now, this is lawyer in the biblical sense, not in the contemporary society sense. This is not attorney at law. If you've been in a car accident, call this number lawyer. This is a lawyer who specializes in the law of God. You understand that this is a scholar in the scriptures. And it says that he stood up and what's that word? Did what with Jesus? Tested him. Think about this. Jesus inspired the writing of scripture that this individual had been studying for most all of his life and now stands up to question and test the author. He stood up to test him. And here was his test question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do was his question to inherit eternal life. And watch how Jesus answers the question. He turns it around on him. He said to him, what is written in the law? For what is his profession? A lawyer. If there's anyone who should be familiar with the law of God, it is this individual. And so Jesus turns it around and simply says, well, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? You've read it. You understand it. You tell me. What does the scripture say? So the questioner is challenged to answer his own question, and he does, and here's his answer. So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That was his answer. 
Now for us in the 21st century, having grown up probably in a biblical environment, a Christian background, this is not a secret or really obscure story in scripture. It's a pretty well-known encounter. And so when we hear, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself, all of us are probably like, yeah, that's good. That's a good answer. But the reason I'm going to guess that most of us know that answer is because it's written in the New Testament. But this man didn't have access to the New Testament. Why not? He was living the New Testament. He was going to be an example, an exhibit in the New Testament. He was going to be in there, but it hadn't been written yet. So he didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have Luke 10. He hadn't read the story the morning before. He got his information from what part of Scripture? From the Old Testament. That's what his expertise was in, was the Old Testament law of God. And so when Jesus asked him, how do you read the Old Testament? What do you understand the law to say on this issue? His answer wasn't nicely packaged together because you realize, I'm sure you do, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and then your neighbor as yourself. That isn't a single passage from the, New, from the Old Testament. That's actually a very careful synthesis of at least two different places in the Old Testament. The first portion about loving the Lord comes from the book of, this is bonus question time, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse, so close, we're weeding out the, you know, the mice from the men with that one. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, it's part of the Shema, the saying, the speaking of God, where he says, the Lord your God is one. And it continues saying, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That was a very well-known portion of Old Testament scripture. But where did that love your neighbor as yourself comment come from? It is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. But it's not in Deuteronomy. And it's not anywhere close to the context of that passage. It's actually found in the book of Leviticus. Chapter 19 and verse 18. Here's the full text from which he pulled that phrase. It says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Do you notice he didn't quote that entire passage? He truncated it. He took a portion of it and put it together with Deuteronomy 6.5 and came up with the answer that he gave Jesus. Now, another thing you have to realize, people didn't have pocket versions of the Bible. They didn't have an app. They had scrolls. They didn't even have chapter and verses. You just had to read the entirety of the Torah, the law, to understand its precepts and its teachings. And this man was able, on the spot, testing Jesus to answer in return, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, woven together. This man, my whole purpose of this is to say that this man knew the law. And he knew it well. In fact, I'm going to say the lawyer's answer was not just a good answer. It was indeed the best possible answer. How do we know that? Because it was Jesus' own answer. Watch what happens when we go to the Gospel of Matthew. And notice a striking similarity yet on a separate occasion. Here Jesus, again, is in the presence of people who are trying to discourage him and dissuade him and distract him from his ministry, challenge him at every turn. And in Matthew 22, starting verse 34, we read, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. You almost get the picture that Jesus is walking through the day and there's challengers left and right coming at him. And when the Sadducees couldn't handle him, they said, the Pharisees will take care of him. And every way, Jesus was battling wits. The Sadducee had fallen, and the Pharisees stood up. And they gathered together. They huddled. They're like, well, let's put our minds together. Let's really trap Jesus. Then one of them, there it is again, a lawyer, asked him a question. For what purpose? Testing him. And saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now watch carefully Jesus' answer. 
He doesn't turn it around. He answers it directly himself. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus took Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, wove them together exactly as the other lawyer did. And he said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So when we go back to Luke chapter 10, when that lawyer answered the question, look what Jesus was able to affirm. He said, you have answered how? Rightly. He said, that's absolutely correct. That's not just a good answer. It's not just the best answer. It's the only answer. It's the right answer. You have answered rightly. This man knew the word of God verbatim, chapter and verse, was able to quote it to the author himself. But then Jesus adds this line. Do this and you will what? Live. Do this and you will live. It does not say know this and you will live. He says, now do it and you'll live. And it's at this point that the conversation shifts and changes. So far, it's just been kind of a trivial pursuit, an academic discourse, a dialogue of wits. And now Jesus takes it from theory to practical application and said, great, you know the word of God. You answered correctly. Well done. Now do it. And watch the shift. <clears throat> but he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? This man knew his Bible backwards and forwards. And he was able to say what you're supposed to do for your neighbor. But apparently he got really, really confused as to who that neighbor might be. How could this brilliant man ask such a simple question? The lawyer knew the correct answer on paper, but he had not put the teaching into practice. How do we know that, by the way? Because look again what Scripture records. But he, wanting to do what? Justif justified doing what? Not putting into practice the thing he had just preached. He was able to say exactly what the law taught. And Jesus said, you're right, now just go home and do it. And it was on that practical point that he says, no, 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 no wait a minute. And the Bible gives us his motive. Wanting to justify himself, wanting to rationalize, to excuse his lack of practical application. And so what does he do? He says, no, 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 wait. before we get to practical, I need to philosophize a little bit more. In the broad sense, in the grand milieu, who is my neighbor really? Do you think there's any chance this guy didn't know who his neighbor was? He knew exactly who his neighbor was. The reason he asked that question wasn't for information, it was for obfuscation. This is a university campus, we can say big words, right? <laughs> he wasn't looking for clarity, he was looking for a way out. He and Christ were in perfect sync when it came to understanding Scripture. But when Christ took it to heart and says, good, now do it. He said, now, wait a minute. Who is my neighbor? As if to say, man, if I could figure out who my neighbor was, I'd be helping them. But, you know, there's some mysteries that only God knows. Wanting to justify himself, he said. And who is my neighbor? What comes next, we know, is the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying 
that the parable of the Good Samaritan was completely unnecessary. I needed it, we've all needed it, the world has been blessed by it, but my question is, for that individual, did he need the parable of the Good Samaritan? I'm going to say no. The story of the Good Samaritan was told to someone who already knew the moral. For that lawyer, it was an unnecessary parable. And again, I'm glad it's in Scripture. Of course there was a need for it. Many, many people have been blessed by it, challenged by it, have grown from it, but this man knew it already. He proved it. And the only reason he was asking was to justify his misbehavior. But Jesus tells the story, and you're familiar with with it, the parable of the Good Samaritan. If not, go home and read it. It's in Luke chapter 10. It's fantastic. There's a man who's walking along the road. He's beaten and left for dead. And different people come by, religious and pious, and they come by and they walk on the other side or they might leave a prayer and that's it. But the one man who actually helped him was a guy who was a Samaritan. And he tells this very basic, very, very elementary story, almost like a children's story at church. In fact, when it gets to the end of it, watch how Jesus appeals to this man as though he's in fifth grade. So, you can almost read into it. So, lawyer, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? I'm going to list off three people and you point to the one that was neighbor. (laughs) Did you understand my story? I'm sure Jesus wasn't dripping with sarcasm. I just wanted to reach where we were, right? But he tells this parable. He said, now which one was actually neighborly? The mean ones or the nice one? Inescapably clear. The man is forced by the sheer weight of evidence. And he said, he who showed mercy on him, that was the neighbor. And then Jesus comes back to what he had started with in the beginning. Jesus said to him, what? Go and do likewise. Now we've taken away all your excuses. Do you know who your neighbor is now? Yes. Good. Now go and do. Now the Bible doesn't tell us if he went and did. My hunch? He didn't. You know, this is not the first time that Jesus had to deal with brilliant people who couldn't get the simplest ideas through their heads. That encounter with a lawyer was not the first time Jesus run into this apparent lack of knowledge from someone whose job it was to know the law of God. Let's think of John chapter 3, where the most famous passage in all of Scripture is recorded. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He didn't say that to a big auditorium or a hillside full of people. He said it to one man in the middle of the night. That man was Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to Him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. We're so glad that you've come. I'm so proud to know you. I'm meeting you secretly at midnight. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. You're truly a great teacher, a godly teacher. Look what Jesus cuts through all the political correctness, all the, you know, obstacles. And he says to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cuts right to the quick. I know you want to talk politics and you want to talk philosophy, you want to talk intrigue, you want to talk this or that, but let me tell you your real need. I'm just going to cut right to the heart. You need to be born again. Just right to it. Now, brilliant man, leader of the Jews, member of the Sanhedrin, scholar in his own right, simplest thing you can say, you must be born again. Look what comes out of his mouth next. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus again graciously explains 
what he means by new birth. He says to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, this is a spiritual rebirth, not a physical rebirth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. He's like, you're talking about fleshly, earthly, normal, temporal things. I'm trying to teach you and talk to you on an eternal level, on a spiritual level. That which is born of the flesh is a flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't come to me with the question, how can I be born again? Do I go back inside my mother's womb? He's like, we're trying to have a spiritual conversation. You're a leader of Jewish people. You're supposed to have the oracles of God and be God's treasure, His peculiar people. And when I say something simple like you must be born again, the only thing you can come up with, I don't understand how to get back in the womb. You know that's not what I'm talking about. But Nicodemus doesn't give up there. Watch this. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? People come to you for spiritual counsel. And I give you the simplest metaphor and you're stumped? How is it possible that on so many levels of politics and and, and, and policy and philosophy and theology and all these, you can hang with the best of them. But when I tell you the simplest spiritual core truth, you're stumped. How is that possible? Now, we could probably come up with several guesses, but what's fascinating is Jesus gives us the answer right there in John chapter 3. Again, the question is, how could otherwise brilliant men, scholars in the scriptures even, miss such basic spiritual concepts? Jesus explains the problem. He says, and this is the condemnation. This is the fault. This is where you fall down. That the light has come into the world and men loved what? darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Notice it doesn't say men did not understand the light. They simply loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their deeds were evil. You've heard the phrase ignorance is bliss. Is it possible to be willfully ignorant, to have the opportunity to know more, but choose not to? Because you know, if you learn more, you're going to be responsible for... I'd rather stay in the dark, like a cockroach. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. If I acknowledge that I get it, then I'm going to have to face the conviction that i got to do something about it. A pastor friend of mine likes to say, everybody wants to know what the Bible says until they find out what the Bible says. I can tell you how many times I put on uh, uh, public meetings, some evangelistic campaign or something like that. And you say, we're going to be looking at prophecy of the book of Revelation with exciting truths. And people come out, ooh, that was shiny. That's really cool. And then you get there and you preach some biblical, solid, inescapably true teachings And they get really uncomfortable. I thought it was just going to be academic. I thought it was just going to be interesting. I thought it was just going to be opinion. But you open up the word of God and it made sense. (laughs) And now I'm accountable for what I just heard. In fact, I know there's more to come. And if I were to come again, you're going to step on my toes even more. And people don't come back. Lest his deeds should be exposed. Much of the confusion people have about spiritual things isn't because the truth is hard to understand. It's because the truth is hard to apply. 
You know, you can talk about big, huge concepts and you can talk about ideas that arc the sky, but when you bring something very small, very practical, some 99 cent everyday change in your life that you're gonna need, all of a sudden people get really like, mm, I don't know, I don't think I understand quite yet. And they start making excuses. And, and it's not because they don't understand. It's because they don't want to understand because with understanding comes accountability responsibility. It's nice when it's up here, but they squirm when it gets in here, okay? By the way, this is what's fascinating and applies particularly to our time. According to Bible prophecy, this willful ignorance of Bible truth will be a marked sign of the last days. The closer and closer we would get to the second coming of Jesus, the more and more clarity will be offered from God's word and the more resistance to that clarity will be seen by those who don't want to see it. Okay? This willful ignorance of escalating, increasing Bible truth will be one of the marked signs of the last days. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, for example. It says, scoffers will come when? In the last days. Now, by the way, what do scoffers do? Yeah, this is a very elementary question. They scoff. What does it mean to scoff? Give me a synonym. Throw it out. Ridicule. I heard one. What's another one? I really can't understand you, so I'm going to assume you said taunt, tease, jest, joke, you know, mock. They're going to come and taunt and laugh and make fun more and more in the last days, walking according to their own what? Lusts. Doing the things they want to do, they'll look at spiritual things and make fun. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Please, you believe in a soon coming of Jesus? That's silly, that's nonsense. But according to scripture, they, there's that phrase, willfully forget. Now, it's one thing to, you know, accidentally forget. As we get older, that happens more and more. I'm not here yet. I have some friends who are getting there in the age, you know. But have you ever had something that you want to forget and you can't get it out of your mind? Ever had a song stuck in your head? It's the worst thing. <laughs> Or some like personal encounter you had with someone there was some cutting thing that they said and it just sticks in your head and you can't get it out. Apparently people will willfully forget Bible truth because they don't want to face the accountability that comes with an understanding. Notice this. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment in the perdition of ungodly men. They forget consciously. They choose to disregard God's experience of judgment in the past because they don't want to deal with the reality that there's a judgment coming soon. And the Bible says what they do with that to get out of that cognitive dissonance that they know what they should do, but they're not doing, he says they willfully forget. And they turn that into mockery, scoffing, sarcasm. He says, don't be surprised when you see more and more of that as we get closer to Jesus coming. We're going to see as we close here in a little bit that the truth of God is polarizing. It is inherently separative, divisive, in between those who accept it and those who reject it. Look at another one. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But know this. By the way, friends, if the Bible says to know this, what should we do? Know it. Thank you. He says, know this, that in the last days, what kind of times will come? Perilous times will come. Now, often when we talk about the soon coming of Jesus and the signs of his return, we talk about 
last day events like earthquakes and hurricanes and wars and rumors of war and pestilence and disease and all of which are true and valid and they do indicate in their frequency and intensity that Jesus is indeed coming soon. But that's not what Paul's talking about when he says perilous times. He's not talking about the condition of the environment or the geopolitical struggles in our world. He's talking about the hearts. He says, in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers primarily of what? Themselves. They're going to love themselves. They're going to put me first. I, number one. Look out for number one. I love me some me. And out of that root of selfishness, out of that spring of self-interest, pours forth this river that he describes here. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. I like to use that one on my kids. Unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What he's describing there is wickedness. That's the darkness that men live in because their deeds are evil. Okay? And in the last days, it's going to get worse. But here's the real catch. Having a form of what? They're going to have all of this wickedness, but it's going to be in a very pious form. Like Nicodemus. Oh, let's meet and talk. Let's philosophize. Let's do this. Let's debate. Let's discuss. And Jesus says, you need to be born again. And that truth start getting to the heart. You start making excuses and ridiculous comments and arguments and questions. Not because you don't understand, but be precisely because you do understand. having a form of godliness, but denying it's what? Friends, I'm going to just pause right here. We're not to the application portion of our message tonight. But there's a reason I have this message at the very beginning of our series. If you're merely coming to restoration, this series of meetings out of curiosity or to hear some entertaining thoughts or some interesting ideas or some new opinions out there, if you're just looking for an academic pursuit or, or an intellectual you know, flight of fancy, you're not going to get anything out of these meetings. You might get some clever anecdotes, you might hear an interesting twist on something you would thought, but you're not going to get the power of what's happening unless you say, Lord, I'm open to whatever your word says, even if I'm wrong. You can be right. Even if something's got to change. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Now he goes on to describe these people. For of this sort are those who creep into households and take captives of gullible women loaded down with sins. So you've got all these women loaded down with sins, and these men loaded down into sins, and they're like, hey, you're sinful, I'm sinful, let's work it out. Led away by various lusts, and watch what they're doing. Always what? Learning. And never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why are they never able to really quite grasp? That's right. Because they're living contrary to what the Word is teaching. No wonder it doesn't make sense. It's in complete dissonance to what their lifestyle is. When your profession doesn't match your practice, something's going to go. Apparently you can have a form of godliness. Seen for all intents and purposes to be a pious, holy individual. But if it's only academic, if it's only intellectual, you can go scripture and verse with Jesus himself and still be lost. What does he say the remedy is, by the way? Preach the what? He does not say preach the entertainment. Tempting as it may be. He says preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come. By the way, does it say the time might come? No. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. 
Now, if you pause right there, it tells me that there will be a time when men will endure false doctrine. False doctrine is easy to endure. It's that good stuff, that solid stuff that's hard to endure, right? But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Notice clearly also, it does not say they will leave the church. It just says, Timothy, they're going to leave your church and go to somebody else who's going to teach the things they want to hear. I'm going to tell it to you very straight tonight. Churches can still grow and be very popular and still not be winning souls for the kingdom. In fact, don't be surprised at all if everybody, remember Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. (laughs) If it's easy to draw a crowd and everybody loves what you're saying, you may not be saying it right. Jesus experienced this. Remember in John chapter 6, the day after he fed the 5,000, he turned to those who were following him. He said, no bread today. Let me teach you the spiritual truth. I am the bread of life. In John 6, verse 66, a very easy text to remember. It says that from that day, many followed him no longer. And I don't think it's because they didn't understand what he was saying. I think it's because for the very reason they did understand what he was saying. I'm very convinced that a good number of people don't come to church, not because they don't understand it, but exactly because they do. Everywhere Jesus faced, as soon as things got tough, weird questions and obfuscations came up. And Paul warned Timothy, brother, watch out for this. They're going to turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Notice they're going to believe something. It's either truth or fables. And what makes the line of demarcation? Because they want something according to their own desires. It's about practice. The problem for most people isn't a lack of being convinced of the truth. It's the challenge of being convicted by the truth. I'll say that one again. The problem for most people isn't a lack of being convinced of the truth. It's the challenge of being convicted by the truth. You see, there's something marvelous that happens. There's a three-step process in salvation terms. Personal salvation. Number one... You have to understand the truth from God's word. Your mind has to be convinced that it is true. But the moment you grasp what's being taught, the next thing starts to happen. Your heart becomes convicted that now I need to do something about that. Convincing leads automatically to convicting. Notice what the book of Hebrews says about the Bible itself. For the word of God is living and powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to division of soul and spirit. And of joints and marrow. And a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God. When understood. Which friends the Bible can be understood. When it is understood, it goes past the intellect and goes down to the very character. And it cuts the heart. People wanted to come to Jesus and talk about this like it was a piece of literature or an interesting document over which they could philosophize and go home and live how they wanted. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's not, it's not a relic, it's a sword. And it cuts down to the heart. When men and women are presented with the truth of God's word, the Holy Spirit, and watch the three-step process, the Holy Spirit, first of all, convinces the mind. Which is, by the way, when we come here to Restoration 2016, I believe that this is my objective. To make sure that whatever I say is true from the Bible and is understood by the congregation. Every night I'm going to ask you if tonight's presentation made sense. Okay? Convinces the mind, and then the Holy Spirit takes that convincing and takes it out of the heart with conviction. 
convicts the heart that something needs to be done. And if received, converts the soul. Convince, convict, and convert. But friends, you can be convinced of the truth of God and you can even feel the impress of the Holy Spirit on your heart and that does not save you. Salvation comes to anyone who yields to that conviction and allows the Word of God entrance into the heart to cut and refine and change. What does the word, by the way, repent mean? We're going to see it in a few minutes. To turn from, to change, to put into practice. Let me give you two examples from the book of Acts about the distinction between merely being convinced and convicted and yet failing short of conversion. First of all, in Acts chapter 2, this is the good example. This is the day of Pentecost. And to give you a little context, I'm sure you're already aware, but just in case you aren't, the day of Pentecost occurred 50 days after the Passover. After the Sunday morning of Passover, there'd be in fact, penta, like five, it's 50 days. It's the, what the Old Testament would call the Feast of Weeks. So it's just under two months after Passover would come this next feast. And all of these feasts, the children of Israel were supposed to return to Jerusalem and attend. Okay? And of course, when Jesus died on the cross, everyone was there for Passover. And Jesus was able to say this was the Lamb of God. That was John the Baptist pointed to him as the Lamb of God because he was going to die as the Passover Lamb. All of those shadows found their substance in Jesus Christ. And the very people he came into the world to seek and to save rejected him and put him on the cross chanting, crucify him, crucify him. Of course, praise the Lord, Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and on the day of Pentecost, the same people who had crucified him less than two months earlier came back and Peter had a chance to talk to them. And the Holy Spirit was poured out in a marvelous way so that every language barrier was broken down so that everyone could hear the piercing truth of God's word through his messenger, Peter. So as Peter got up to preach, he preached a message that was powerful. The Bible only records 26 verses of sermon that he gave on the day of Pentecost. 26, that was it. And of those 26 verses, 13, exactly half of what the Bible records of Peter saying, were direct quotations from Old Testament scripture. He didn't entertain them. There wasn't a praise band. It wasn't any of that. He said, I'm going to preach the word. And he laid out an airtight biblical case that Jesus was the Messiah and they killed him. So 13 verses were direct quotations from the Old Testament scripture. 11 verses were practical application of those or interpretation of those passages. And the final two verses were an appeal. And look at his appeal. It's on the screen. Acts chapter 2. Verses 36 and 38. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That had to be a tough message to preach. He was able to show definitively, inescapably clearly, that Jesus was the Christ and they were his murderers. Whom you crucified is now both Lord and Christ. By the way, the man you killed is alive. He's in heaven and he's in the seat of judgment over your life. Now check this out. And you'll notice we've highlighted the three-step process. First of all, they knew for certain that what he was saying was true. No, assuredly. Then they said, when they heard this, they were cut where? To the heart. So they understood, they knew the truth, and it dawned on them, this isn't just an interesting idea, this is a convicting concept. They were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were convinced, they were convicted, and now they're looking at the response. What do I need to do with this truth? You know what I praise the Lord for? That Peter didn't say at the end of this powerful sermon, oh, I'm, I didn't mean to lead you on. There's really nothing you can do. You're all 
you're, you're damned. I just wanted to let you know. <laughs> no, he wasn't preaching just merely for information. He was preaching for the goal of transformation, to see a change in their lives, right? He preaches so they'll know, they'll be convicted, they'll be convinced, they'll be convicted, and now the question of conversion is up to their response. And when they heard this, they said to Peter and the rest of the brother, men and brethren, what shall we do? And his answer, and Peter said to them, what's the very first word? Repent. What does repent mean? Turn. Change. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were convinced. They were convicted. And when they yielded their lives to that truth and were willing to change, they were converted. Three-step process. By the way, look at the, look at the results of this beautiful conversion. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So continuing daily, in what condition now? With one accord, isn't that nice? Beautiful, harmony, peaceful accord amongst the people of God because they've come into unity on a common reception of the Word of God. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It's a beautiful picture. They were convinced, they were convicted, they were converted, and they were brought into unity as one body of believers. But I said earlier on that the truth of God is polarizing. It is inherently divisive. Jesus would say it himself, think not that I've come to bring peace, but to bring a what? Sword. In the Old Testament, Amos would say it this way, can two walk together unless they be what? Agreed. That agreement can be in favor of Christ, but it can also be in rejection of Christ. By the way, Satan loves unity just as much as Jesus does. Watch this now. The same truth that binds Christian genuine followers of Christ together binds the enemies of Christ together as well. Now remember, Acts chapter 2 the people who had killed Jesus were preached to and convinced that the word of God convicted them of their sin. And they yielded. They were converted and brought into unity. What's fascinating now is five chapters later, in Acts chapter 7, another man, this time by the name of Stephen, gives for all intents and purposes the identical sermon, this time to the leaders of the Sanhedrin when he was arrested for preaching in the name of Jesus. And he has to give a defense as to why he would do that. And he goes the same route Peter did. He preaches the Old Testament scripture. He leads them down through the history of God's people and said, the Messiah that was to come, you have now killed. In fact, notice how he preaches. I guarantee you, you've never heard a preacher in your life speak as pointedly as did Peter or Stephen. Watch Acts chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Woo. Sometime I just want to experiment with preaching that boldly. <laughs> just to see how it goes. Maybe you get lucky the next couple weeks. Who knows? <laughs> you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You always do what? Resist the Holy Spirit. He's gone down a history of Israel's rejection of truth. And he says, you're just like all the other ones. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist. As your fathers did, so do you. Then he gets a little rhetorical. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? I like to think he gave them a minute. Think about it. Isaiah? Nope. Jeremiah? Nope. Ezekiel? Anybody who brings truth of conviction to God's people usually faces persecution and rejection by God's people. And it's not because they don't understand the message. They just old-fashioned don't like it. Which of, your prophets, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. 
It's the same message Peter was preaching. Now watch the response very closely. When they heard these things, they were what? Same exact phrase that those who were converted on the day of Pentecost had said about them. They understand, they heard the word, they understood the word, and they were both cut to the heart. Both groups were convinced, and friends, both groups were convicted that what was being said was true. But notice this response now. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. You ever had somebody say something that was true, you just didn't like it, and the best you could come up with was just a growl? Like, (sighs) that's all they had. They couldn't come back with reason. They couldn't come up with a clever question. They just had to grind their teeth and... Notice, I love Stephen. He wasn't done yet. I'm guessing when he pulled out the you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, he knew he was at his last sermon ever. So he's like, you know, what have I got to lose? Watch this now. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look! He reminds me of the story in the Old Testament. Remember they were bitten by serpents and what was the remedy? Look at the bronze serpent and live. And friends, people still died. It's not because what was trying to do was too hard. They just thought, didn't want to do it. And here Stephen is saying, look, you people killed Jesus and he's standing right there. Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Just look to Jesus. And notice the response. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. I mentioned I have three children, the oldest of which is five. I've seen this response to truth they don't want to hear. This is not a theologically nuanced question. This is just a core sinful nature response to the cutting truth of God's word. You're either going to yield and be converted or you're going to do what these guys did. I mean, they literally, they gnashed their teeth, right? And then when more truth came, notice they physically tried to keep the truth out of their heads. La, 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 la. Has it to say, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. And ran at him in what condition? In one accord. Let me say this as clearly as I can, friends. It's a dangerous thing to understand the word of God and not respond. It's a dangerous thing. You don't want to trifle with that. As the week unfolds, we're going to talk about these themes more and dig deeper into the great controversy and our place in it. And We'll talk about it later, but we're going to find out that the reason it's so important to not reject the Holy Spirit now is because each day we're building the person we're going to be tomorrow. Because a person who today chooses to reject the Holy Spirit will have built a person who tomorrow doesn't have that choice anymore. They've just become someone who's hardened to his voice. Acts 2, they were convinced, convicted, and converted and brought into unity. In Acts chapter 7, They were convinced, convicted, but they refused to be converted by the truth, and they were brought into a different unity. Friends, in the last days in which I believe we are now living, 
I'm absolutely 100% convinced, convicted that I'm going to see Jesus before I die. Now, of course, I could get hit by a bus. I understand that. But given a natural course of a lifetime, I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus is coming that soon. And that we're living in what Paul called perilous days, when men are lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, yet doing it all in the form of godliness. I'm going to tell you right now, you could drift through Restoration 2016, be convinced you might even feel the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. But friends, you have to yield and say, Lord, here am I, change me. I'm absolutely convinced that we need a generation in these closing hours of earth's history who will allow the Holy Spirit to not only inform them, but by God's grace, transform them into the people we need to be. The work of the Holy Spirit is to take the truth of God's Word and like a sharp sword, apply it to your life in such a way that you're cut to the heart. Convicted. But conviction alone will not save you. Your response to the prompting of the Holy Spirit determines whether you're converted. Basically, it boils down to this. Conversion is a choice. Now, I'm going to do my best to make things clear. And I'm going to do my best to make it interesting and appealing and let the Word be unsheathed fully and be sharp and cutting. And the Holy Spirit, I promise, has already begun working on your hearts. He's trying to prepare that soil for the reception of the seed of truth, but the conversion depends on your response. Let me challenge you right now at the outset as we look to begin a study two weeks long of massive ideas like the great controversy and the end of sin and where my role in all of this is and what should the church be doing now and what is my part in that church? We're going to look at all of those things, but right now, I wanted to put this message there first. That no matter what we talk about, if it just stays theory, it will do no good. But it is my prayer that we go deeper than that. It's my prayer that the Word of God will, yes, convince our minds, and it will convict our hearts. And through your yielding response, will convert the soul. So let me ask you a question. Has tonight's presentation at least made sense? Was it clear enough to say, yeah, I got it? Good. Now, we're not having an altar call or an appeal tonight, but I'm laying down the framework, the foundation, to say that each night we're going to come and we're going to study the Word of God. And it's going to be deep. I hope it's going to be clear. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure it's going to be convicting to some people here. And my prayer is for you already that you allow the Holy Spirit to do His converting work in your life and yield to His influence and let Him change you into the man or the woman that God intends him to be, to experience what they we're going for here, restoration. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for being a God who created us in the first place. But more than that, you communicated your will and you sent your Son to give us an opportunity for eternal life. And Lord, now in his place, you've sent the Holy Spirit to be his representative, not even, not just next to us, but in us, Lord, knocking on the very heart's door. And Lord, we want to see the truth as it is in Jesus. We want to understand your word, but more than a mere intellectual exercise or an academic pursuit. And even more than a feeling of conviction, Lord, what we want to see is a transformation of the character that can only come through genuine conversion. Lord, restore us into your image. Rebuild us into what we were designed to be. Make us citizens of your kingdom. And through us, may others see the light and love of Jesus Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen. I want to give you a little promo for tomorrow night. Tomorrow night's message is entitled, Know Your Enemy. We're going to launch into a five-part study of the great controversy, and I can almost guarantee we're going to look at some perspectives you've never considered before. This is absolutely one of my most exciting things. I get pretty amped up to talk about this, and I hope that you do too. But we're going to pull back the pages of history and look what the Bible says about why there is evil in the world and what's God doing about it. Not just good answers. I believe we're going to find the right answers from God's Word. And we're going to begin to find a place in our lives for His work and a place in His work for our lives. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.